2: Hey Ben,
1: I'm doing fine. How's life six miles away?
2: It's six miles away, but it might as well be on the other side of the planet in a deep underground bunker protected by trained uh, wolverines. I'm going to go with wolverines.
1: Whoa. Okay. Wolverines. Yeah. Tough, tough animals.
2: Yeah, no, it's it, it's going well. Actually, it's nice to see you on Zoom. I'm, I'm enjoying <laughs> Zoom a lot. I know that that was uh, my short end last week, and I, I think uh, Zoom is, uh, is one of the more amazing services I've encountered of late. I'm finding myself using it a lot for professional stuff.
1: Do you use it in full screen mode so you see my face taking up your entire gigantic monitor?
2: Actually, what I do is I put it in gallery mode. So I see both of us. And then when one is talking, a little uh, kind of yellowish, greenish uh, rectangle surrounds the person talking. So, uh, wow. So yeah.
1: High tech. So Very. if you put it
2: in gallery mode, like, for instance, when we did the, the table read that I did on the project that I'm co-writing uh, last week, we were able to have all nine people on one screen. And you can have more than that. Uh, it, it, it's pretty sweet. So right now, it's just the two of us. You know, it's a little bit like Skype, but a, a little better. And yeah, so uh, who is on the show today? Laura Mirian Gonzalez. And she's wonderful. She's
1: a, she's a shooter, and she's got a wonderful, fantastic story. One of the best sort of, like, origin stories of any DP that I've ever heard.
2: Really, was she bit by a radioactive camera?
1: Th- that actually would make for a better story, but no, her story is pretty darn good. <laughs> she, uh, I- I'm not going to give it away because uh, I want people to hear it, and it's just uh, fascinating and uh, remarkable. So.
2: so, Ilya, what do we want to do today for our George Foyt Close Focus?
1: Uh, there's an interesting article in Variety today about how distributors are giving a second look to movies that they previously passed on, after film festivals or other sort of pitches for distribution, they basically saw the movie and went, eh, not for us. But now that, really nothing new is being produced all of those things that was sort of you know maybe not quite as good as they would have hoped like maybe the first time around they went you know this is a single or a double or a triple not a home run uh, they're getting they're giving a second look and uh, now that there's no theatrical distribution really on the table for anyone because people aren't going to theaters all of this uh, all of this is a really interesting time for particularly indie filmmakers people who had stuff at major film festivals and uh, yeah there, there's there's new renewed well, interest again
2: it, It's interesting that theatrical isn't on the table because obviously theatrical will be making a comeback. It's just, you know, two months, three months away on the outside. What, you know, maybe six months away, uh, God forbid, but it's some number of months away and they will still have to put stuff into movie theaters. So, you know, in the amount of time that it would take to put together some kind of a marketing plan for whatever, or or are they just like putting these on streaming platforms like, you know, sign the deal and you're on the streaming platform platform in two weeks
1: yeah i think i think it's like that it's the the latter and and you know uh, i could go to a really dark place that uh we will never be coming out of this but uh no i i am an optimist actually i'm not an optimist i'm a pessimist but i'm gonna be optimistic and say that yeah you and i
2: are both are both brother pessimists because yeah (laughs) i i i'm i'm like i'm really hoping that three months from now i i can feel confident doing something crazy like going to starbucks and having a latte and sitting in a chair that somebody else sat in
1: Yeah, that, uh, you know, over the days of (laughs) thinking without, without wondering for a second if this surface that I'm touching is going to kill me.
2: So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's uh, it's nuts. If you're listening to this from like five years in the future and you don't remember this time clearly, I mean, this is just the craziest time because it's also freakishly normal. Like you walk down the street in your neighborhood and you keep a distance from people, but not like an insane distance, you know, 10 feet away from somebody. You can still have a conversation. It doesn't feel that different. And yet everything is different.
1: Uh, I, I saw some neighbors today wearing bandanas and N95 masks and things like that. And it's like, howdy, neighbor. And uh, yeah, waving my rubber gloved hand at them. And it's like it's yeah, it's all a little surreal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we went to the store or Alicia went to the store the other day and it was like uh, bringing stuff into the space shuttle, getting it back into our house. Like there was a she went <laughs> into the airlock. side door. There's a designated area that we'd wipe down with Clorox wipes that she put the groceries on and wiped them down to. And then we picked them up and put them away from across that. So she didn't cross the threshold ever. And then afterwards, she threw her clothes immediately into the into the washer and immediately took a shower at the same time. Like it's it's a weird time, man. But back to the Variety article, anecdotally, I wasn't here for this conversation. So it's a secondhand conversation. But a friend of mine was telling me he was talking to a mutual friend of ours who's a TV writer. And he was saying that actually, there's kind of a feeding frenzy uh, right now, a, a little bit amongst executives buying stuff. And it's hard to know, is it like, well, these executives have to justify their jobs, which maybe they do, or more likely, like whenever we come out of this and life returns to something resembling normal, they have to have stuff in the pipeline. Like there has to be, it's, it's, it's gonna be more than like, we had a period of business as usual time and and we need to get that much stuff out like all production has basically ceased so th- there's going to be like no new stuff we're we're running out of stuff right now so it makes it, it's interesting that some of these movies got picked up and hopefully it's going to give voice to some filmmakers whose stuff maybe we wouldn't have have gotten a wide release on or have seen otherwise but i think that whenever this is over we might see an explosion of content
1: i think that's likely I really think that there's a lot of stuff that's sort of going to be written during this time, maybe even a little bit of pre-production. Uh,
2: I, I might be doing some writing myself right now. So
1: I have some clients who have been in touch because, you know, uh, the, the professional Hollywood sort of machine is uh, a, a massive demographic for customers at hot rod cameras i'm finding myself with a little bit extra time on my hands right now since uh yeah a lot of that uh, business is uh, put on hold so uh so yeah it's um it's an interesting time for sure right now uh and i think that it might be the birth of some really wonderful creative stuff because if you aren't doing something to channel your energies towards something productive it'd be really easy to make it a uh to go to a dark place to go to a place that is not uh is not productive and i i'd like to think that i, I uh, can art, multitask
2: i I can, yeah. I can i can you can be I in can a dark place productive. and get stuff done <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i'm used to getting stuff done from the dark place so it's fine <laughs> Uh, all right, so hey Ben, let's get to the interview with uh, Laura Marions. All right, here she is.
1: The Cinematography
0: Podcast Interview.
2: I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank with Laura Marions. Thank you so much for coming on in. Thanks for having me. So I, I start every episode with a big question. When you're looking at a script, what do you see? Do you see pictures, or do you see lighting? What what first occurs to you?
3: Is that a trick question? It is not go? a trick okay. question.
2: It's just my way of it's. It, it all starts from actually someone who was on the podcast, Fraser Bradshaw, who later told me that I had misunderstood what he'd said. But the idea that DPS uh, tend to start with lighting or tend to start with composition to me is it a composition or a lighting thing? And if I'm if if you reject the premise of the question, that's cool too.
3: Maybe not reject. It's just it feels like it's more of a you know they're they're not mutually exclusive to mm-hmm. me. They're like it's almost like asking someone not to think of a pink elephant or mm-hmm. something. It's like, as soon as I think about it, a story or like start visualizing a story, I'm like thinking about framing and lighting at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive to me.
2: Well, so walk me through, like, as you're reading a script, what what's going through your head? Like, how are you, how do you put together the, the visual idea of whatever the project is going to be?
3: Well, I think you start from feeling. I mean, you start from how you're responding to the story, like what is resonating with you and you're just kind of reacting, I think, to, to like the writing and to the story and what, what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, like everything starts with feeling and emotion. Um, but also like images are so attached to that for me, you know, when I'm reading a book, I'm, I'm thinking about it visually as I'm reading it. Um, so it's the same thing. Well, I don't know if
2: it's like trying to explain a joke. Cause maybe it is, but when you say that what's occurring to you is feeling like, is there a visual accompaniment to the feeling while you're feeling it? What I'm always searching for is like, we give you a pile of pages and eventually you're going to turn that into like a requisition for, you know, we need so many condors and this and that, and this and that, you know, we need a Steadicam and a gimbal or whatever. Like you're going to turn it into a bunch of technical stuff down the road. Where does that process start for you though? Like how do you start kind of formulating what that's going to be?
3: I think some things jump out, you know, on the off the page for you that are just like, wow, this is clearly like something that I would approach in a specific way. But for the most part, I think you're just, you know, the first pass of a script or a, a music video when you're listening to the track or looking at a treatment, I, I try and just take it in just as an observer, as a as a, an audience or just, you know, someone that's just looking at material and so I think the first pass is usually just seeing what it feels like seeing how you respond to it and um, hopefully you like it and if you and if you are excited and like images start coming out that's when you know it's it's a good fit for you
2: stupid question what do they hand you these days when you when you get a music video you know like we've had people in here like you know you you know sal totino we've had him in or larry fong and people who kind of shot music videos in the 80s and the 90s but you're shooting a lot of videos now still right yeah so like what is the material that you're given these days
3: it really varies. I mean, some directors I work with are really detailed in their treatment and they'll do drawings and they'll do detailed previs and sometimes you'll just get like a set of images. You'll mm. just get the track and like a set of images and kind of like a, a one page description of setups that they want. But it can be it can be very vague. And then, you know, it, it just really depends on the director.
2: A lot of times we talk about how sort of the middle class of music videos has kind of fallen out and there are like very high end, very expensive music videos and music videos that are made for $50 in somebody's backyard. But the stuff that I uh, that I watched on your reel, a lot of it is like extremely high end, very stylized. I have no I have no way to gauge what what the budget levels of, of these things must be. But, you know, there's there's something so uh, so visionary going on in the work and honestly different from narrative filmmaking. And I know I I, we talked about this before, but you had done uh, a video for Adams for Peace. And like, I don't even know how you would go about conceptualizing how to do what you did in that video. It was like looking at a beautiful painting, but I don't even know, like, how do you go about even formulating that idea? Was that the director's idea? Was that your idea? Like how did where, where did it all come from?
3: Well, a lot of the music videos, some of my, my favorite music videos I've done, I've collaborated with Andrew Thomas Wang on. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an old dear friend, and an incredible artist, and he's one of the directors that's very, very specific in his pre-visualization, his planning. Um, we work together very closely when we're prepping a job, so we'll talk about all kinds of things, all kinds of references. Um, for the Adams for Peace, we were looking at Zabriskie Point.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah. Antonioni. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So we watched that. We actually, you know, modeled. I would the...
2: never have made that connection <laughs> in a zillion years. And I have seen that movie within the last year.
3: <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I think if you look back, you'll notice it. But mm-hmm. the sky tonality, all the clouds, um, the mountains, the landscapes, that sort of feeling of this end of the world like desolate environment and the concept of the video is sort of like a foregone time of an artist who's been like buried in all these ruins and he's rediscovered and he like kind of resurrected so what are like
2: i I mean we're gonna go deep into your background but i i just have to know like what are the shot elements is it a melding of cgi and yeah like how do Lots you how do you go CGI. about figuring out the parts that you're going to even f- make as a filmmaker like uh, you're going to you we're, we're going to hire you so you're going to like point a camera and talk to a lighting crew about how to light stuff like wh- what parts of it are, are that did did the director already know which parts of it were going to be shot because it's such a, a mind meld of all of these different things.
3: Yeah, I mean, Andy's big into prep and big into pre-visualizations and just sort of like figuring out our strategy. And um, he kind of knows what it's going to look like afterwards before mm-hmm. we even start. And he does a lot of compositing and a lot of VFX work. And he does a lot of it himself, especially back then. And yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to say because in the prep, we we collaborate a lot. But really, you know, when we're actually executing, it's it's stuff that I know that he needs. And we talk about it together, like how we want it to look, the the tone of the lighting, like the values of the light and the elements that we need, that's gonna line him up for success in the compositing. So we'll, we also try and do a lot of stuff in camera. Like we shot those buildings crumbling, like stop motion. So we actually built practical buildings, and but beforehand, like we went through LA, and we like chose our favorite buildings and oh, wow. like modeled <laughs> buildings and rocks. We both like are really into rocks and <laughs> and <laughs> um, earth and. Um, you
2: see brisky Point. I do think about like a lot of high desert stuff and houses surrounded by boulders.
3: Yeah, but also like the beauty of the shape of rocks and mm. some of the bigger rocks that we chose. Like we chose those rocks and those specific designs, like because we liked the aesthetic of those, those rocks and, um, same with the buildings. And so we, he modeled, you know, with his production designer, those buildings and those rocks. And then we took them apart and like, we had a whole day of stop motion photography where we just frame by frame crumbled the buildings and did stop motion photography.
2: Oh, that's so much fun. What blows me away about stuff like that is like, you know, having, being a, a, a jaded person, having seen everything. When I look at something and I'm like, if you told me you had to go out to you know uh, a dry lake bed in the middle of Sierra Leone to shoot that to make it work, I would believe you. If you told me you'd shot that in a room this size on a green screen, I would believe you. I had no idea how you did any of it, and and it it, it keeps me engaged. But I can uh, we're not going to spend all time on Adams for peace. It's a great video; everyone should check it out. But let's go back to kind of like your your beginnings. Like, what was the moment in your life when you decided that cinematography was a path for you?
3: Well, I I fell into it um, completely. I I studied philosophy at university, and I was going to be a philosophy professor. And oh, really? What yeah, university? Uh, Berkeley.
2: Oh wow! Okay
3: and um, was in love with philosophy and academics and just wanted to dedicate my life to it. Mm-hmm. And then I was about to go, after I graduated from college, I was gonna go live in Japan for a year. But um, my brother, who I'm really close with, he's a printer. He prints black and white large format photography, like photochemically. Whoa, still? Still. Nice. Still, he has a company called Big Prince in New York and um, one of his long-term clients is Larry Clark and he was down in Florida visiting Larry, um, who was prepping a film called Bully. Oh yeah. And um, so before I left for Japan, my brother said, I'm, I'm flying you out, you gotta come say bye to your brother and um, hang out with me. So I went, I went over there and then him and Larry were like, you should work on the film make some money before you go to Japan. And they were like, you can pick any department you want. Like, look at this list. These are the different departments that you can work in. And I just chose lighting because I just thought that sounded the most interesting to me, like arbitrarily really. And so they were like, okay, talk to the gaffer, like see if, you know, they can use you. And um, I did. And basically the gaffer was desperate because the film was so low budget. Well, he ended up hiring me as his best boy
2: oh wow where were you shooting it in Florida by the way
3: a town outside of Orlando called Hollywood
2: oh Hollywood Hollywood's near closer to Miami I think. oh is it I'm from Orlando oh, so I know sorry yeah I know, I know, yeah. Is I it? know all, all the cities around Orlando.
3: oh gosh well it was a long time ago but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hollywood wait yeah. you're
2: bragging about this <laughs> not bragging about being from well, Florida
3: do, do you remember the story Bully do you remember uh, yeah, like yeah. that it's a true story so, so yeah sh- we I actually sh- this shot I should off the top of
2: my head but who was the DP on that show Steve Gaynor okay
3: So Steve Gainer will always be my first DP that I saw the first day on set. And I just said, wow, that is the best job in the world.
2: Wow. Really? Yeah. Way better than being a philosopher.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's cool. I was like that. Yeah. I just, I just observed Steve on the first day of the job. And like,
2: what were the things about it that were like, that were sparking your interest the most?
3: (sighs) He was, it looked like he was having fun. Um, He was creating. He was working with everyone. He was commanding the set. Um, He just had this whole team of people like executing a vision for him. And he was just really enjoying himself. Like Steve had this great energy and just super creative and really looked like he was having a blast. It it didn't look the same for everybody else. Yeah. You know, Larry didn't look like he was having a good time. Like the producers don't look like that. Like nobody. It was like a hot, sweaty, like miserable shoot. But Florida. Like, no, can't no, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the yeah. summer. Oh, God. So it's like worst. pouring lightning rain every yeah, day. Every day at
2: three o'clock, those thunderclouds roll in. I worked on a film once in Florida and I counted how many hours I was in the art department and I counted how many hours we'd lost to rain. And it was like it was like two full days. Basically, it's like because like two o'clock, wind up those cables, put them in the truck. And, uh, and then because this whole film was almost all exteriors. So did I mean, did you end up staying in touch with him? Did you did you work with him on other projects? No,
3: I actually haven't seen. I've, I saw Steve like once or twice since then, mm-hmm. but that was like years ago. Um, but I should I should get in touch with him because like he's I doing wonder, all that cool stuff, with the ASC and like collecting all those cameras. <laughs> he's just he's a great guy. I mean, like I wonder he, how he would, he would
2: feel knowing that you that he was the inspiration for you following this as a career path. Yeah. Before you changing your career path. So you, totally So you already were you already graduated from college? Yeah. Yeah. Graduate was, school too or just No, undergrad?
3: undergrad, but I was like in the process of, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out where I was gonna go for graduate school and um, just want to take some time off because it was so intense um, that last year at Berkeley and I just wanted some downtime and then I never went back.
2: Did you end up going to Japan?
3: I did. I went to Japan for a year. And, and then when I came back, it turns out that Bully had flipped. So I got into the union while I was gone. <laughs>
1: oh,
2: my God. And then I came home. Your first show you got in the union. First show. So lucky. lucky
3: so lucky. And um, it was like a really busy time in town. So the local was calling me. Like, I didn't even, I didn't even like pursue it at all. They were calling me. They just needed, you know, permits basically. Or like, you know, at that time, I guess I was a permit. But, you know, I joined... Shortly mm-hmm. after, once I got my paperwork together, but like in
2: Florida, like in the union? no, no,
3: no, this is in LA. Oh, okay. So somehow, because I wasn't a local, because they did put me up oh. in Florida, and my address was in LA. So while permanent. you
2: were working on the movie, it wasn't union, and then it flipped. While I was in Japan,
3: crazy. Like yeah. after
2: the shoot, after
3: after the shoot, yeah. I don't know if it was like I didn't know what was going on. You know, it was like my first film, so I didn't really know how any of this worked. But mm-hmm. I guess. You know, it was starting. The process was starting while we're shooting. But I didn't even. And I think I think they actually had mentioned it to me before we wrapped. But I didn't know what that meant, you know, that you got into the union. Like, I just didn't They didn't come
2: up and say, like, here's all the money you owe the union to join. (laughs) Congratulations. You're in the union. Here's your bill. Right. Um, No, no. I mean,
3: they gave me a choice, but I took it.
2: So before that, what was your level of knowledge of like how to work with film lighting before you were best boy on on Bully?
3: I mean very,
2: very little. Really? Very little. I mean, had, I had you done it at all? Had you had you worked on some student films or anything No, at that
3: point? No, I had I had a job in, you know, in, in college that was like in a theater. So I did like I had hung a source for in a park Got it. That was my you know, I knew how to use a crescent wrench. Yeah. I yeah. knew what an extension cord was, you know, but that was basically it. Yeah, it was just learning under fire
2: on that job and then Was the gaffer uh, pretty uh, patient with you, your learning curve? He was surprised at how little I knew. He hired
3: you. uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, I would never do that now. You know, looking back, it's like that confidence. I just... I, you know, I, I guess I just, you know, was super ignorant to like even what I was agreeing to, but I just thought like best boy electric, that sounds cool. And lighting, that sounds <laughs> it does, cool. It sounds like a superhero, best yeah, boy electric. Yeah. Yeah. Um, funny, actually, I had to like write the producers a letter asking them to change it to best girl because I, did they? yeah, they did. They did. But I had, I was told that I, I just assumed, okay, I'm a girl. So they'll call me best girl. But then they were like, no, that's not how it works. You're a best boy. And so I was like, "Well, can we change it?" Like, and they and they was like, "Yeah, if you write a letter." So I had to write a letter to all the producers oh, asking for per- permission. But they did, not so I'm actually credited
2: as best girl. Like I would, like I would wonder if the union had a position on that. Like you know, because it is you know, it's sort of like because it is just the name of the position.
3: It's the name of the position. It's like
2: the plural of is the plural of Batman, Batman or Batmans. Yeah. <laughs> it's Batmans.
3: Exactly. But yeah, I mean, looking back, it's like, cause I didn't know, I just assumed, well, I'm a girl. So like, why wouldn't it be best girl? But anyway, um, yeah. So yeah, I um, got back to town and the hall was calling me and I was like sent to the Sony lamp Dock to just, you know, haul cable basically
2: and load, load just bins of four. um, At this point has, has the bug thoroughly bitten you? And you're like, did you go to Japan and think about making films for a year? No,
3: not at all. At this point, it was just like, learn a craft, do something that's neck down. Mm-hmm. I was so tired of thinking, overthinking, <laughs> and just I didn't want to think about existence. I just wanted to work and make some money. Yeah. Um, you know, just being a poor student. I had been in Japan, very poor there as well. So, um, Were you
2: going to Japan to work or were you doing a work study thing? or
3: No, I was doing martial arts. Oh. Um, so like very poor existence.
2: <laughs> I, I don't know, I, I, I don't really know much about martial arts, but which martial art were you?
3: I was doing Iaido, mm-hmm. um, which is like sword work, and then um, Aikido. Mm-hmm. But it's it was like a special style that's a competitive style. So I went there to like compete and join the Japanese team and just oh, wow. train there with the masters.
2: You still do that stuff?
3: No. Oh. No, I haven't kept it up. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now, you were telling me before we started recording that uh, martial arts kind of influences the way that you look at cinematography. Can you go into any... and And I immediately said, stop, let's save that all for Mike because that's exactly the kind of thing I find fascinating and hopefully our listeners find fascinating. So can you elaborate on that at all?
3: Yeah, I think just being there during that time really changed the way I looked at arts and craft as well. Like just there being a Westerner, I just didn't have the pretense to understand anything that was non Western, but the Eastern view of arts, which, you know, the martial arts is considered an art. So there's sort of like a objective value of art there Mm -hmm. that I hadn't experienced before. Whereas like if you're good at a craft, if you work really hard, you know, if you earn the skill level of someone that's good, then you can create good things. So I think I came back and just, I think that might have been part of my interest in working as an electrician for so long was just observing and and getting the opportunity to like learn a craft um, very slowly and by observing the masters. Hmm.
2: And so uh, when you say that, like when you were working as an electrician, when you talk about the masters that you were working with, are you talking more about gaffers and people who are doing more lighting? or Are you talking about cinematographers that you might have worked with a, a long way?
3: Yeah, I think I mean anyone that was sort of like my my senior, mm-hmm. um, but definitely gaffers, definitely um, you know at that time working gaffers and then gaffers and then and then cinematographers.
2: So how long would you say you were primarily working in the electrical department before you started uh, moving towards shooting your own stuff?
3: Um, about seven years.
2: Okay, cool. Yeah, that's a nice a nice long tenure and. Uh, Kind of going back to my initial question, like I, I sort of have a theory and I don't, I, like, again, having looked at your work, I couldn't tell you which. I think, you know, some people jump out at me as a, as a compositionally driven uh, cinematographer, some people look more lighting, but I feel like you have both of them working, but I always have this theory that people who come out of lighting and weren't behind, didn't come up through the camera department, for instance, those people, a lot of times are more interested in, in the camera stuff when they get to it. Like at what point do you start getting your hands on the cameras?
3: Yeah, it, it definitely took a while to start to, you know, cause, because I was an electrician, because I was exposed to that part of the craft, it was a lot, obviously that's where my confidence level that's where it was when I started shooting, but then it was it was years of, of operating, and um, even now, you know, it's like I feel like camera is still something that I'm constantly like learning more about. And I mean, the past five years, I would say I've gotten really like into learning about lenses and you know all all of the things that you just do naturally as a DP. But like mm-hmm. um, I think starting out for sure, I was much more confident in. In terms of lighting, than I was in camera, and then I just started like you know shooting a lot of documentaries. I did a lot of reality TV, and I just really liked that. Again, it was like more of an opportunity for me to just like learn and get comfortable and like get the the time to develop a skill before I was even like I didn't even call even though I was shooting and like actually getting paid as a DP. I didn't like call myself a DP mm-hmm. until I mean a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, like, so like when you're in the electrical department at that time, are you thinking, you know, because there are people who just make a career out of out of doing electrical and, you know, become a gaffer and just gaff on bigger and bigger things and retire one day. Did you always have your eyes set on like you wanted to be a cinematographer? You wanted to kind of rise through that and become a DP?
3: Early on, I wasn't that presumptuous mm-hmm. that I would ever get that opportunity. I just wanted to work, you know. I think in the first like four years, I just wanted to work as an electrician, yeah. Um, and I was really happy doing that. And then, and then as I started just developing a passion for it and becoming more and more like just entrenched in in the world and like really getting to know the craft, then I started just realizing like I I do want to be a DP and like I do want to like dedicate my
2: life to this. And like I know you say you've only really been calling yourself a DP for a few years but like at what point did you first like get your hands on a camera you know cuz like in the electrical department you're not necessarily ever really looking through the lens or doing any camera stuff when did you make that move
3: I bought a DVX100
2: Ah yes and I was like,
3: I just remember being on the phone, like at my lunch break as an electrician, like on B, the phone with B and H, giving them my credit card number, and I was just so nervous. What am I doing? I'm buying a camera. That's
2: a great, that was a great camera it for a, its time. It, it was, was a
3: great camera. I ended up giving it to a bum on my on my street, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was really happy about it. But um, I kind of wish I still still had it. But uh, yeah, I just I bought a camera. I. You know i just decided you know i really want to do this i really want to at least start just shooting things on my own i mean i i always like shot super eight when i was a kid mm-hmm. you know so i guess there was there was something but it, it always just felt like you know something for fun it was it was always just like a a fun toy that i had almost like were you, you, know?
2: you were you making like narrative films with super eight or were you shooting like you know your family on vacation or both
3: I was making like more visual collage. It was mm-hmm. almost like a diary. And so I would always have my super eight with me and I would oh, do cool. like an one, one roll of film would last me like six months. I would. It's like ridiculous to see them because yeah. they're just these like montages.
2: Do you look at any of them now, or do you still have them?
3: Yeah, I do. I do still have them. I haven't looked at them in a long time, but I, I, I definitely have them. I always
2: want to know, like, when people tell me that like they started off shooting Super 8 or on whatever, it's like, like I always, I would, I would love to do like a special of this where we just bring people in and show them like the first things they ever did because I feel like you know, of course, you, you know, your your taste and technique have become more sophisticated. The technology is more sophisticated but I bet there's a kernel of what you do is probably still lodged in those things, I think. Yeah, I
3: well, know. I still carry around a Super 8 sometimes, and I still have that method Whoa. where I do just like frames. Really? Yeah, and and yeah, um, Pro 8 millimeter down the street, that's like my longest professional relationship because I used to send them my film when I was like 11 years old.
2: So really? I've known like, yeah. And, yeah. You, and so you're still doing these, do you, I mean like are they anywhere where people can see them online? Or oh you, God, no. No, this is like.
3: Uh, they're personal, they're like, yeah. yeah, they're, I mean, I guess, yeah.
2: So in this day and age today, uh, what's the attraction to Super 8 for you as opposed to you know like obviously you could do this stuff on your phone, you could do it on a DSLR, you could there's any number of very inexpensive cameras you could walk around with. Super 8 is such a specific look.
3: Yeah, I think I just like that look, and mm-hmm. it's nostalgic for me, and it you know is something I'm just used to. It's just part of me.
2: What like what stocks do they uh, do they still make?
3: They do like 7219.
2: Oh, they're doing negative. Yeah. I mean, th- that's where Pro 8mm splits like 35mm yes. negative and puts it into the cartridges, right? But like, do they still make the old reversal? Plus no. X, Tri-X, any of that? Ectochrome, no, I have,
3: I have some rolls of it from a very long time ago that <laughs> I actually have a yeah, loaded roll of Tri-X that's very old in my camera right now.
2: So it, I'm, I'm sorry to back way, way the hell up but at what age do you start making uh, these Super 8 collages? This is fascinating.
3: I think like 11.
2: Really? Yeah.
3: Like my dad had one and I just, Mm -hmm. I had it and then he had film in it and I just like took it over. And then um, all through, you know, all through college, I did it and I always had like Polaroid camera. I always had like cameras around Uh me, but yeah, the Super 8 is like definitely, it's like deep in my heart.
2: That's awesome. And, and so, and I mean, do you have all the ones you've ever done?
3: Yeah, I do. I have every single roll of film.
2: Have you ever, have you, I know you say you haven't looked at it, but have you transferred the ones that you did like, you know, when you were 11? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I have them all transferred and fill That's Um, Phil and Rhonda have digitized them for me.
2: That is so cool. Now, were you doing any kind of like physical manipulation to the emulsion or was it just you were just shooting stuff? Were you doing other experimental techniques? I know when you're 11, you're not going to think about an experimental film technique, but were you doing any other techniques? No,
3: no, I think think just like doing the frame thing, like Mm -hmm. the in-camera edit was like my thing. Um, (laughs) I guess that was my technique. And then, you know, later when you're able to do like, Kind of supervised transfers there now, so.
2: Oh yeah, and they do like 4K transfers now, correct? Yeah, right? yeah. Totally off topic, but are you familiar with this new Super 8 camera that Kodak has been talking about? It's like kind of vaporware. I haven't seen one, but like they they have one that they're supposedly releasing at some point. Cool. No, seen? I have
3: I have so many Super 8 cameras. It's like the last thing I need. But I love my new favorite thing. Well, not it's not new actually. I've had it for years, but I've just busted it out again. Is um, an underwater Super 8 camera. That I have. Who made that? I don't know. I want to say it was like Jacques Cousteau's kind really? of. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 so really it's like cool a looking. special build of yeah. something. Yeah.
2: And and have you have you shot it? Yeah. Really? yeah.
3: Underwater. Yeah. Yeah. You just submerge it and it and
2: it it goes actually. Um, like do you go to the beach or sw- stuff in swimming pools or? Where?
3: Anytime I have like a shoot with underwater stuff, I'll have it with me. So I'll just shoot you know my own little like BTS. Thing with it or um a couple years ago pete romano does like an underwater cinematography class i don't know if you know about that it's i in, do not it's incredible it's at tank one and he'll have he'll bring out actors underwater actors and so i i shot super eight at that which was really cool
2: oh that's fun i'm trying to figure out like how could someone take inspiration from this and do the kind of thing that you did so whether it be super eight or whatever, and obviously it, it sounds to me like the content of it is personal and not something that you are interested in putting out in the world. But like, what are you working on when you're doing these things? Like what what's the itch that it's scratching for you?
3: I think if you're just compelled to create or capture something, you know, it's just important to do it regardless of the medium. It's just, you, ha- you have to do it. So whether it's a super eight camera or, you know, Alexa or, your cell phone you know you just have to create images that's the biggest thing and I think a lot of people when they're starting out they ask and I hear a lot of DPs say this you know it's just you gotta shoot you just have to shoot and that was like where my DVX came into play Mm -hmm. you know where I just started shooting and that's just how it starts and now of course the tools are amazing so you can actually create things that look good I know so it's it's just an amazing time for for creators that want to express themselves in that way there's just so many tools that allow you to to capture things that are actually beautiful that other people want to see too, not just like... You know mm-hmm. your D V X projects but
2: is there and, and this is maybe a question that literally everyone on earth would answer differently but is there value in kind of doing this practice that's kind of just for you like you're not really going to share this you're not going to put it up on your website you're not using it to get work it's just kind of a discipline or a practice or like how would you classify what it's doing for you creatively i i think that's
3: what it's all about you know mm-hmm. that the process is what it's all about it's not For me, I mean, it's never about the results. Um, I think with features, that's been changing a little bit. And, you know, when thinking about doing a long-term project and what the life of a feature can have, and that it's something that can really impact people and be something very powerful in the world. But I think in general, most of my work has just been for the actual act of of creating.
2: So the act of like being on set and doing the creative work itself. It's an interesting way to look at it because I always think that that a cinematographer's job to a certain degree is to execute like, you know, y- you know, a, f- a DP will get fired if if they're too experimental and the footage doesn't look the way that it's expected to look, especially in like the commercial world where you've done a lot of work, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I do feel like your stuff does kind of ha- makes sense when you say that, because I feel like your work has kind of an experimental kind of ha- handcrafted kind of vibe to it, which is which is fun and maybe that's the the through line because like as i was looking at your work it was you know like there there are some dps who you, you see their their technique or, you, or there's a look they get that they get really well like robert richardson who we spoke about earlier someone who comes to mind who you know like he can do a lot obviously but there's like a specific look that i associate with him but with your stuff it all looked different but i actually feel like that maybe w- what's running through it is kind of the craftiness of it like the way that it's been crafted So you get a DVX-100. You said you worked on some reality shows and stuff like that. Like, was that strictly camera? Was that camera NDP? Like, you had shifted to to being comfortable being a camera operator, at least at that point.
3: Exactly. I mean, I think
2: that just allowed
3: me to just get time on the camera, get time operating the camera, Mm start feeling confident in that aspect of the job. So, yeah, I just started shooting a lot, anything, you know, without any kind of you know regard for what it
2: was just
3: as long as I could shoot I want to shoot
2: how like how are you finding directors to collaborate with at that point
3: you know a a lot of friends you know a lot of PAs that Mm -hmm. were working while I was an electrician they started directing and they're like oh you want to shoot it wasn't even about anything that I had shot you know (laughs) you'll be in charge of the thing I don't know how to do (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly no I mean I think back then it was a lot about just like everyone's desires you know I want to direct I'm going to direct you know I've been PAing for a long time I've been like you know an assistant director for a long time, I want to start directing. And like for me it was like I've been working as an electrician, you know, it's like they knew that I wanted to start shooting. So like mm. friends would hire me for music videos and then yeah, I was like DPing. I was I pretty much started just DPing. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was operating, you know, all these things that I was DPing. I still operate
2: like what are like the first kind of big projects that that come your way? I mean, because you've done a lot of commercials and music videos. Were you going down that road to begin with? Or was that like, how did you find yourself in that world?
3: Yeah, shooting, I started shooting a lot of music videos for friends that started directing. And then, yeah, I think things started to change when I started collaborate with Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a short film called Solipsist, which was just a labor of love like low budget scrappy handmade short film and then that got him a a music video with bjork and then we shot that and then we shot like a few other bjork music videos together
2: how did you how did you and andy manage to meet up
3: um we met through one of my closest friends so i've actually known andy for a really long time because he's one of my closest friend's cousin mm-hmm. So we met at like a family gathering years ago and then he was graduating from USC and he said, I'm, I'm graduating from USC. I'm starting to um, direct and I have this music, he had a music video and he was like, I have this music video I want you to shoot. And I was like, okay, (laughs) great. That's wonderful. So that's how it started.
2: It's interesting uh, to, to kind of think about because obviously a lot of people that we bring in here, you know, went to film school somewhere. And so that's where they, where their network came from. But your network, it sounds like it came from actually just being on film sets.
3: Yeah, being on film sets and just meeting people on film sets and just kind of being in the world, um, and also
2: friends. And uh, so I'm assuming you, you were living in L.A. at this point. Yeah, living in L.A. Um, And, and so so you started doing the stuff, uh, you know, the Bjork videos. And you had, you had, again, told me off mic before we started that you had worked with uh, an, another guest of the podcast, Sal Totino, and also Robert Richardson. And uh, you'd worked with Robert Richardson when he was working on a, an Errol Morris commercial or some commercials can you can you talk about I mean it doesn't need to be those specific people but like who are the people the mentors or the or the people who you got to see working who you were able to draw inspiration from that you were able to then kind of cycle into your own work somehow
3: oh my god there's so many you know like that was one of the great benefits of being an electrician for so long is you know working with so many different dps with so many different styles and Mm -hmm. I worked with Bill Pope and um on spider-man too and with Fred Elms and I mean they all just were so different you know I remember on that like Errol Morris Richardson job it was like my mind was just blown by their energy and innocence and like they were just two little kids. I just remember like loving working with them because they had this way of doing things, which is now kind of common in commercials where they're just like handheld camera. They're like running around, you know, we'd lock up the 7th Street Bridge and downtown and they'd just be like running around chasing a car, chasing actors. They'd cast a lot of non-actors. They'd roll when nobody knew they were rolling. And it was just kind of like chaos Mm -hmm. that drove, you know, production crazy. But it was like their energy in their way and however it was,
2: crazy drove production I bet it drove the ad agency even more crazy.
3: Yeah, I mean they would just let those guys go I mean, they <laughs> you kind of knew what you're yeah. in, in for like working with those guys and uh, another DP named Ramsey Nickel who I worked with a lot in commercials and he also just had this incredible positive energy all the time and you know Just seeing different people work. I just took so much from from everyone Um, John Toll, I worked with a a bunch on on commercials and he was just so specific and so meticulous and um, detail oriented. And um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of
2: it's kind of weird to me because uh, not weird, but um, like so many of these people who are like famous DP's famous directors go off and do commercials and as an audience member you, you never know you're watching a commercial that was directed by you know the cohen brothers or you know something that you know was shot by john toll i mean like to me that's that's bonkers that i'm sure we've all seen a, a thousand of these and don't even realize it um i i you know and and it's such a great opportunity obviously for them to like try different techniques or work with you know different kind of cameras, work with different crews, but then, you know, kind of bring, bring them into their own stuff. So what are some of the lessons that you learned? You know, it sounds like you're very positive, like you want to be a commanding positive presence on set, which obviously a lot of cinematographers are, uh, have reputations for being grumps and some don't. What, what are the, what are the attributes that you, that you took from these people that you think should be someone, you know, when you're, when you're moving into shooting your own stuff?
3: Yeah, I think, I think the positivity is great, you know, like regardless of the job, whether mm. it's, you know, a commercial that you might not ever see or, <laughs> be, you know, be involved with ever again. And like just being enraptured in the process, I think that's that was like a really big lesson um, from the people that I worked with that were really influential is like, you know, just being being in the process, being present, being flexible, being thankful to your crew, really taking care of your crew. You know, I learned a lot about what I didn't want to be like, you know, with some of the DPs um, Mm -hmm. that I worked with that I just, you know, that 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 wasn't me, you know, that once I started shooting and even if there were some less, you know, some things that I saw that I know worked for them and their personality, it's like every DP has their own sort of method on set. And like, to me, the best experiences and like the ones that I really took the most from were the people who just created this community on set you know and that where everybody was like involved everybody felt their value that nobody was taken for granted like I used to make me feel so good when I was in the back of the electric truck wrapping up and the DP would come over and say thank you you know so I do that on every single job and um, just thank everybody and And I do. I mean, I love my crew. I love how hard they work. And I just want to be in the kind of, I want to create the kind of set where people feel open to communicate, to um, voice their opinions. You know, I won't always listen to them, but it's like, I still want to hear them, you know, and I want that to be the kind of of environment that you work in, not like a just dictatorship.
2: How do you keep that? tone going when you're you know like the sun's going down and you have three more setups that you have to do and like you're you're in a rush like how do you keep the positivity going like when when you're under the most stress
3: i think as part of the job too is just to work well under pressure and i think when you know when the pressure hits everybody if they're if if everybody's like working as a team mm-hmm. then people pull together and work hard when the pressure's on and that's, that's what happens. You know, it's like, you don't want people to kind of not be there for you in that moment. You know, that's the moment that they need you. So like that you need them. So you set that kind of tone. So no matter what, you know, everybody is like your ride or die and they're showing up for you and they're working as (laughs) hard as they can for you because they want to, they want to support you, you know? Um, and everybody wants to just get the best
2: result. I know it's a weird question, but with your background in philosophy is there any philosopher that goes off in your head when you're when you're on set when you're working when you're under pressure whatever the circumstance is, is there any specific philosopher or school of philosophy that you think kind of lines up with your life as a cinematographer
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, you know, I think back to philosophy a lot, but I don't think about theory when I'm watching things. But I think having a theory when you're approaching something can have fantastic results, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, But I don't think you necessarily need to know the theory to appreciate it either. You know, it's like looking at art, and that's what's so cool about it. It's all perception, and the fact that You know, this innocuous kind of thing can continue to give you something, give you meaning, give the viewer meaning. And you don't necessarily have to understand the artist's theory or intention behind the art. To appreciate it or get something out, get your own theory out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I like that idea, and I I like the empiricists a lot. You know, I like the idea of perception and thinking about like how people perceive things differently and how perception can be controlled and with light or with objects. Um,
2: yeah, your whole job is per- is controlling perception. You're controlling the audience's perception.
3: Yeah, yeah, and like um, one of my favorite philosophers, George Berkeley, he talked about perception a lot and he was an empiricist and he talked about like, yeah, to be be is to be perceived, you know? Mm -hmm. So when we're creating, we're actually creating, uh, when we're creating perception, we're creating something. Yeah, in the world, you know, which is which is interesting, but you have all these choices and as filmmakers and cinematographers and directors, you get to you get to create that together, which is which is so, so cool.
2: Well, I, I won't force us to deep dive down uh, philosophy. I'll save that for our philosophy podcast spinoff <laughs> that you will host and not me. Um, but uh, no, but I, I mean, I, I just think it's it's interesting to think about <laughs> to think about thinking and how you know when you if you if you're someone who has a background in that kind of a thing um, as you do, like what that might do to influence. You know, I mean, ultimately on the day, you're going to be like, well, the camera's going to go here and we're going to put this light here and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Like you're going to walk in with a plan. But at the same time, you know, you are doing something deeper than just recording uh an event you know you're you're creating the perception so i anyway i i think i think that that's fascinating and i i hope people look into that kind of stuff but let's get more let's talk a little bit more about your narrative work because you have a, a new film called the pacified which won an award at camera Image. so that's humongous you know to me that's kind of the end point like what what brought you there were you looking for that feature to work on this whole time were you more focused on kind of staying in short form music videos commercials that kind of stuff
3: I definitely was looking for something long form and just the right thing and I met Paxson the director of pacified in Brazil and he sent me the script and I loved it and I was actually supposed to leave like the next day and I ended up staying in Brazil for like 10 days and just talking to him about the script and going to the neighborhood that he lives in where we shot. Um,
2: oh, he lives in that neighborhood? Yeah,
3: yeah, he lives in Preseres, which is the oh, neighborhood wow. we shot the whole film.
2: So uh, it's impossible for me to watch uh, this film, which takes place in the, it's Foveas, right?
3: The fa- favela. Favela.
2: Yeah. I, the, uh, I was, uh, there, there's a part of the eye called the Flovea, and I always confuse it. Anyway, it's hard to watch that without thinking about City of God which was you know obviously a, a, a landmark film of its time and there are similar there are superficial similarities in that you've got young characters in the leads and it takes place in in one of those neighborhoods in Brazil but other than that's where the similarities and did you look at a movie like that for inspiration at all?
3: Yeah, we we looked at that, well, we talked about City of God a lot um, just in terms of what we didn't want to do. It's an incredible movie, and um, we both love it so much, but we really wanted to do a film that was more of a just simple human story that happens to take place in a favela rather Mm -hmm. than making it about, you know, sort of the tropes that are normally seen in when people are representing Uh, favela Um, so yeah it's really a story about a girl named Tachi and um, this guy named Jaka who she has a relationship with and she thinks might be her father she doesn't know who her father is and it's about um, them coming together and, and sort of forming this relationship but it's also a big part of the story is the community but not because it's a favela it's because it's Prazeres and Prazeres is a very special community and i think that people especially in brazil like clump all the favelas together like mm-hmm. but they're all these very very distinct neighborhoods with all these you know like any other neighborhood every neighborhood has its own personality and Prazeres has a very specific personality and looks a certain way, you know, and has colors and it's just the neighborhood has its own life and personality, which is very unique.
2: So when I was looking at it, it looks almost documentary like what you've done. I mean, it's obviously a lot of handheld and it's gorgeous and beautiful. And I think it deserves all the accolades it's getting, but it it almost like, I'm, I was watching it and getting stressed out thinking, how do you even get lights into a place like that? Because it seems like everything is stacked up on top of it. You know, like if you had like a big HMI light or something, you were going to try and bring, shoot in through a window. It might be physically impossible. So like to what degree were you kind of trying to work with what you got li- lighting wise in that area?
3: Yeah, it was a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. because there are no roads. It's all stairs. Yeah. So we had to walk the gear in every day and walk it out every night. So that that alone took like two hours off our day. Um, And
2: I mean, like even in the film, you see how hard it is to get to each one of these locations and then like in unbroken shots or obvious punch-ins, you're in the location. It didn't feel like you were on a soundstage when you were inside. It felt like you were really inside these places.
3: Yeah, but I mean, what one cool thing about it is that what made made our, my job a little bit easier, manageable, was that we did sort of had a, have a run at the place. So once we had these locations secure, you know, like Shaka's house, um, Tachi's house, we were able to hang soft boxes and like leave them there. Anything Mm -hmm. that was like inside could be left alone. Um, So we are able to like sort of pre-light all of our locations, which was great. And then in terms of uh, bring things through windows, we just really kept it small you know, and whatever we can hand carry. And also just kept it old school because there's not a lot of new technologies there. It wasn't, there weren't any M18s, there weren't any light mats. So just, you know, working with older Fresnels and, you know, just the classic stuff like Fresnels, parkans, things like that we used all the time. And we had, there were a couple locations where we were able to build scaffolding and put lights on scaffolding. but still like we kept it very small and um, we used the light grid of preseries because we were also able to control that so like there's a lot of sodium vapor lights all mm-hmm. over the community so we, but we were able to like turn off banks of them or hang our own where we wanted and just you know kind of utilize the city lights you know any way we wanted which was great that was super helpful for like the night work
2: so when you're prepping a movie like this, how much in a box are you uh in terms of what you can do in a in a place like that when you're creating the way that the movie's gonna look?
3: Everything. But at the same time we had a great team and mm-hmm. we were able to prep a lot. Like Pax and I um were able to spend a lot of time in Preseries together and feel locations, know our locations, like really explore where we wanna shoot, what was gonna work for us, you know, we really wanted we picked our places, and it was great because mm. we, we were able to shoot anywhere we wanted. I mean, the community was so open to this project and was involved in the project and oh, really? supportive of it, so that that helped. And then we had this incredible production designer named Ricardo Vanstein, who actually used to be a huge commercial director in Brazil um, in the 90s, and he's a painter and this incredible um, artist, and he was able to... Paint walls for us. Like we kept seeing like the same colors um, over and over again. But you know, for example, we'd be in a location didn't have that green we wanted. That we wanted another location. He would he would replicate it. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like having our own scenic. But oh, wow. he was able to get in there and you know with a small crew and paint these incredible like aged textures that you see everywhere anywhere we wanted. So he he did a lot of incredible work that added so much to the to the vision that we wanted.
2: How do you create, because I feel like having a lot of gear, especially you've got young actors uh, who who I have no idea what the experience level of, of the actors on in the movie are, but some of them are extremely young. And so you have all these cameras and stuff around them, but the performances and everything come across as extremely real and extremely intimate are you doing anything as a cinematographer to kind of give them the room to kind of walk around and improvise or to keep gear out of their way or like you know what what is your process in terms of uh, enabling the performances to 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 be as intimate as they are in this movie
3: yeah that was really important because pax and i both wanted the film to feel really intimate and also not impede the performance at all or make the actors and non-actors because yeah um Tachi was is had zero experience before this film and like a lot of the a, a lot of the kids were non-actors mm-hmm. so yeah I just you know got to know them early on in the prep process I would be there at rehearsals and shooting rehearsals with the camera so I think they just I and then also just I would always have the camera on me especially when I started shooting so I just like comp- that that alexa mini was just attached to my body and i would just always have it and you operated the whole movie yeah
2: was it just one camera
3: yeah and we kept the camera you know as mini lens just very simple like mm-hmm. stripped down um camera body and so we just try to keep that minimal and i would just stay close and you know Mac- paxton trust me to to be that you know close and intimate with the actors, and and it, it worked out. You know, I think I just like created a rapport, and also they were just very very used to me being around mm-hmm. with the camera at that point. So that's that's just how I approached it
2: that's awesome and uh like you say they did rehearsals and you know obviously that's not something that's not a luxury you get on a lot of features what did you get out of you know like i always hear about like uh coppola does you know three weeks of rehearsals on every movie or whatever and the dp will be there for a lot of that or all of that were you there for a lot of it were you trying out you know camera angles or you know were you were you using that uh, as a rehearsal process for yourself as well
3: i think for me that that happened more in During our scouts, you know, Mm -hmm. when we're spending time in locations and kind of figuring out how we wanted to block the scenes, um, we didn't just want to like block the script, we obviously wanted to like enhance it and do interesting stuff in every location. So, you mean like like, block
2: shoot, like shoot all the scenes against this wall all in a row in one setup, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what you didn't want to do, no, (laughs) no,
3: um. And so we just wanted to kind of maximize the environment and make that a part of the story. So yeah, I think that a lot of that was figured out while we were just like spending time in location more and more and just like talking through the scenes and how we want to approach them. And then once we we're shooting, like even even if they rehearsed without necessarily knowing the blocking, we just like block on the day and just rehearse it and usually shoot the rehearsal mm-hmm. because that those were great, but also, you know, Um, it was definitely one of those things I think that we got in, it benefited to rehearse and it wasn't always like the gold was like the first take. It was once we really rehearsed it and got it down, then we, then we got something good, but it it was necessary. I think the process just doing it that way and even like, um, shooting the rehearsals, I think were helpful, even though those weren't necessarily the takes that were in the movie.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sometimes you get magic, you know, when at, at that moment, Uh, like in the abstract do you think that most films would benefit from having a rehearsal period and specifically having the cinematographer at the the rehearsals like that it's not on set or is on set but isn't like you know we're not here to make the magic we're just here to kind of walk through stuff or solve problems
3: absolutely um I think that is a crucial part of The prep process, I think, for for me and Paxson for Mm -hmm. the like the ability for us to make that schedule. There seems to be like this instinct now to kind of shoot the rehearsal and try and get that, you Mm -hmm. know, and think that it's going to be great and good. But I think that the rehearsal process and blocking process is just so essential for everyone especially when you're trying to do like because it, it's not really a documentary you know it's we, we're trying to do something cinematic. No it
2: feels super right. it, it feels like you're there like it has it, I don't I, when I say documentary like you know it just has that I, I think that it it's cinema verte and kind of the you know French new not French new wave like the Italian neorealist kind of kind of sense where it just kind of feels like we're in this place as a, a filthy American, my tendency would be to exoticize that world. But it, it actually just kind of just makes it feel like a real place that I, that that exists that I know I could like go to and it, it doesn't feel gussied up or, uh, you know, changed for, you know, it, it made more palatable or or anything for me, you know, as, as a viewer. And that's I appreciate that about it, but it's also gorgeous. You know, um, yeah, it looks looks great. Um,
3: Yeah, we wanted to feel real, but we also wanted to be cinematic and poetic and do things that were, you know, in a cinematic language, not just like, oh, let's just, you know, follow these people around while they say their dialogue.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So uh, talk about camera image and uh, and winning the award there
3: crazy so crazy so unexpected I mean mm. the films are so good and
2: you know I mean Ilya goes to camera mosh. I've never been there but I've been to a number of film festivals but it's a film festival about cinematography right so to right. win an, a cinematography award there is like you know the highest honor you, you know anyone's going to get at that festival and, yes. it's, and it's a world-renowned festival it's not you know uh, some some tiny festival that nobody ever hears about like it means a lot to the cinematography community that you that your film won.
3: Yeah, and it, it meant a lot to me. I mean, I was like I said just so so surprised but also just so honored. I mean, just being mm. there alone and being nominated and yeah, rubbing was, shoulders with like yeah.
2: some of the biggest cinematographers alive.
3: Yeah, it was it was one of the best weeks of my life. I mean, it was just so much fun and everybody was just like so open and generous and everyone's guard was down. Everyone was having a great time and the whole week was just incredible. And it was like camp, you know. <laughs> it's like the best adult like cinematography camp. <laughs> and then, yeah, to win was just like unbelievable. It was such a good feeling.
2: Uh, when does the movie come out?
3: So we just we had actually just premiered at um, San Sebastian Film Festival about a month before Camera Maj. Mm-hmm. So now it's gonna go do some more festivals, and then I think um, it'll be out, you know, next year sometime, probably mid year.
2: Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad I got a chance to see it. Do you have a next thing uh, that you're already working on or are you looking for the next thing right now?
3: I'm looking for the next thing. I'm just meeting and reading scripts right now. So hopefully, hopefully something cool will happen in the next year.
2: (laughs) Cool. So where, uh, where can our listeners uh, find, find your work or find you online? You know, uh, your website, Instagram, any of those things that you want to be spoken to on?
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, I have a a website. It's my name, com, And I'm also on Instagram it's just laura marians
2: yeah so well hopefully you'll get a a few more followers check out the website i I certainly did there's a lot of great stuff on there and uh congratulations on the award and thank you so much for coming out
3: yeah thanks for having me it's fun
1: thank you
2: laura marians for coming on the show it was really great having you thank you for sharing that story with us excellent and we look forward to seeing whatever you've got coming up next so Ilya, you know what time it is right now Oh, it's my favorite time. It's bill paying time. (laughs) Woohoo. I love paying the bills.
1: So who (laughs) is our exciting sponsor this week? Our exciting sponsor is the fantastic Aperture. Aperture. Nice. Aperture. Yes. Aperture, mostly known for their, their LED lights, uh, also occasionally monitors. And they also have another company called Deity, which does microphones and everything else. They're doing something interesting for fans of their brand, which is they're doing training on their products that they usually only do for for dealers and and, and people like hot red cameras they're making it available to Anyone, and if you would like nice. to take the Aperture Lighting Training Certification, and then you take a quiz and you do well, the top scores are getting a free light. They're giving away a, an ALM9 light, and uh, they might even be giving away, I think, an MC light for the people who actually do the absolute best uh, on this quiz. Oh, so, uh, if you would like a free light, uh, you have to spend some time in front of a screen watching, you know, the Aperture team break down and explain all about their products, and then afterwards taking a quiz. You, if you're in the the top percentage of people i believe you you win something which is which is really cool it's a nice thing to do for for uh, fans of your products and brand especially when we're all kind of you know stuck at home right now and trying to you know maybe
2: i mean uh, be, is, be is there a lot of math time. involved is there is there math
1: no i don't think there's any math involved i think that really it's about just uh you know learning what the product does and learning how mm-hmm. it works and learning what sort of features it has and i think that's the type of stuff they're going to be quizzing you on
2: oh sweet yeah, so it's uh,
1: it's a, it's a nice way of giving back to their community, and their community is really impressive now. Uh, if you go to the Aperture Lighting page on Facebook, four hundred and fifty thousand people like it. What? And they So then have they have a group which has got thousands of members and stuff. Come on, but, yeah, Aperture, send
2: us some send us some people. Come on, seriously. <laughs> uh, I, I you know what I think they, I think they've sent us one or two. Very cool.
1: So yeah, so uh, Aperture, uh, yeah, uh, check them out. If you want a free light, you can, and you got lots of time, you can take their training. You can find it at the uh, their Facebook page, which is literally Facebook forward slash capital A, Pature slash. So it's just, yeah, that's their page and there's
2: a link there. Excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm going to personally check that out. I got some time on my hands. Not much, but some. <laughs> Enough time to do some training on some lights? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I could, I could I could add that to my resume
1: now short ends <laughs> all right so so ben it is short
2: end time sweet yeah you got
1: you got, you got a, an obsession this week an obsession I do, from and, your, it, and, your it, and
2: it's it's actually very sad okay. there's a filmmaker who is very uh, influential to me uh, both inspirationally professionally and personally uh, passed away this this week, uh, a, a man named Stuart Gordon and Stuart, our horror loving fans uh, will know his uh, horror movies, spe- probably most famously uh, reanimator. Which was uh, a horror movie from the '80s, uh, starred Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. Like basically, he gave us Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton, who are both amazing actors. Uh, Reanimator was an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation. He did uh, a few other H.P. Lovecraft adaptations, notably From Beyond and Dagon. He also did a version of The Pit and the Pendulum. Um, oh yeah. He, he made a number of movies, um, and his last movie uh, was a movie called Stuck, which had uh, Stephen Ray and Mina Suvari. Is it fair to call Stuart Gordon a
1: cult film director? Because it seems to me like his fans are almost like a cult. If he, I mean, his, I mean he has got rabid fans. I see people um, post well, about Stuart. Well, I'm,
2: I'm, I'm one of them. Yes, I would say he is a cult filmmaker. He's somebody, like, there was a certain kind of horror that was very prevalent in the 1980s. A lot of it was kind of slasher movie-ish or kind of... Ran on a slasher engine, you know, kind of set in place by movies like John Carpenter's Halloween. And then Stewart kind of came at it very, very differently and made movies that were really bold and weird, and just strong, visionary movies. And it it comes out of, and this is a second part of how he's kind of a hero of mine, is that he was a giant theater pioneer in Chicago. David Mamet this week wrote an editorial basically that said, like, all roads in Chicago theater lead back to Stuart Gordon. He founded a theater company in the late 1960s, early 1970s, called the Organic Theater. And out of that come people like Joe Montana and Dennis Franz. Uh, Stewart's wife, Carolyn uh, Purdy Gordon, and they were married, you know, they, they were married back then and they, uh, you know, they, they were still married when he passed away. And uh, he got to work with just some brilliantly noteworthy writers. He worked with Ray Bradbury. He worked with Roald Dahl. And very close to me, he worked with, Kurt Vonnegut. He did the adaptation of the Sirens of Titan in 1976 that I restaged a few years ago here in L.A. with his permission. And actually, he updated his script a little bit. And that actually brings me to kind of like the personal experience that I had with Stuart, which is uh, I I was uh, an artistic director at a theater here called Sacred Fools back in 2013. And my friend Janelle Riley, who was on the show, gave me a script that Stewart had given her called Taste, which was, I think, the most page turning script I have ever read written by a guy named Benjamin Brand. And Stuart directing it, Stuart attached to direct it. And I was just every every piece of that was perfect to me. The fact that it was just an amazing script, the fact that Stuart, who I knew, uh, I knew of his theater work. You know, from way back. I mean, he he directed the first professional production of a David Mamet play. I mean, people don't realize like just how how deep and and broad his experience was. He worked with so many noteworthy people. So anyway, when Janelle gave me that script and I read it, and it was just the most riveting piece of script I'd ever read. You know, I I worked really hard to get that play up. I came on board as a producer, and then I also assistant directed. And assistant directing in theater is different than film. It's more sort of like director junior. You're kind of like helping the director and being an extra set of eyes. Guys. Stewart didn't need me to do that at all uh, but he kind of let me have a front row seat uh, watching him direct this amazing piece of theater which I would say is probably my favorite play I've ever worked on in any capacity and then a few years later he allowed me to direct his uh, adaptation of The Sirens of Titan which also meant all, you know all the world to me but I feel like he's a, a unique voice he's a voice that kind of crosses generations and brings in people like Bradbury and Roald Dahl he, he he's someone who made a lot of movies and uh you know I don't know if Stewart wanted to be a giant mainstream filmmaker he did create Honey I Shrunk the Kids so I think that was probably the biggest mainstream thing he ever did but I think that his provocative taste in in what he did like his movies are all very uh very provocative very challenging to the audience and that's not necessarily a mainstream taste Uh, one editorial that I read kind of said that he was almost more of a European director and I can sort of see that but anyway it's it's been a really sad week he passed away a week ago tonight as we record this and uh and you know he's 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 been on my mind and the influence the the towering influence he's had in my life and in the lives of a lot of other people has been on my mind also like I would say we became friends I feel like I kind of flatter myself to say that I was a friend of his but you know, we'd go get lunch sometimes. And, uh, he was just, he had walking around brilliance that most people that I meet, you know, can't, can't even touch. And we live in a city full of really smart people too. So he really was, uh, just, just an amazing, uh, special guy and he's already very missed. And, um, the personal loss is awful. Uh, if there's a silver lining when, when somebody like him passes away, I feel like it causes a lot of people to go like, Oh yeah, that guy, you know, really was a giant influence. Even if again, he's not, maybe a household name as a, as a movie director. He really did leave a mark. And like you said, he is, he has a rabid fan base of people, including myself, including a lot of the people I know who worked with him, like Jesse Merlin and Graham Skipper, um, Chris McKenna. These are people who are fans of his work, who also had an opportunity to work with him. And he was very accessible and friendly and helpful and gave great feedback. And uh, it's just, it's just a, it's a shame, but, um, but that's all I need to say.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm just immediately going to his uh, his IMDb right now. And I, I did not realize uh, how prolific he was, including the movie yeah. Robot Jocks, which, you know, I remember seeing Robot Jocks. I think I saw it in the theater, actually. So, yeah, he wanted and, to and call all it ro- of-
2: Robo Jocks in the studio, said it sounded too much like RoboCop. And so they made him call it Robot Jocks. So if he actually gave me a, a Blu-ray of that personally, and oh, nice. uh, and he said the T is silent. Uh, you know, he also, uh, all
1: kinds of stuff. Uh, he did the script for body snatchers. So
2: yeah, he's, he's, and he was an amazing writer. Um, when we were doing the remount of the Sirens of Titan, we had his original script that they'd done in 1976. And there are certain things from the book that I wanted to, I wanted to try and get into it because it's it's my favorite Vonnegut book and Vonnegut is my favorite writer. So I guess it's my favorite book. And there were certain things I wanted to see if we could get in. And there was like, you know, the female lead. We kind of wanted to give her a little bit more to do than what was in the original script he'd done and some other stuff. And he was excited to do it. He was excited to get back into it. And I kind of learned from Stewart. sometimes he would, he would do something that you would read and you'd see the change. And you'd be like, that's not much of a change. And then you'd hear it out loud when actors did it. And you'd be like, oh, my God, that changes the, the meaning of everything as soon as an actor says it. And uh, there's so much to learn from people like Stuart. And, you know, they're, they're, it's not like there's gazillions of people uh, as prolific or as, uh, or as good at what they do floating around in L.A. or anywhere but those people are out there. And, uh, you know, I think it's important that we kind of honor them while they're still alive. I think that, you know, Stuart knew the love that he had from a lot of us. He did a, one of the, I think it was the last play that he directed, was a, a remake of Reanimator as a musical comedy. Um, and it, it, in a way was almost making fun of his movie and that play was sold out forever. He did it before we did taste, but then they did another production of it that they took to Vegas and, uh, Graham Skipper played, uh, played Herbert West, the, the Jeffrey Combs role and, uh, Jesse Merlin played. Uh, the uh, Dr. Hill roll and it was great music and it was really funny and and very inventive and grotesque in its staging. It had a splatter zone which we sat wow. in. A, a, Alicia <laughs> and I went and saw it on our it's anniversary. It's like the splash zone but
1: it's splatter yeah. zone. Yeah. Before, <laughs> okay.
2: before I ever met Stuart, uh, Alicia and I went and saw that uh, when it was uh, at the Steve Allen Theater and we sat in like the second row and the climactic end of it you know, was Herbert West singing and holding an intestine that was squirming and shooting blood directly into my face and it was the funniest thing that I've ever seen in a theater it was, it was so much fun but that's the other thing is he just had like the darkest, funniest sense of humor. And, you know, I, I feel like even right now as we're going through what we're going through in society, he's the kind of person who would have a really interesting take on COVID-19 and on how society is responding to it and how it's changing everything. He just he was a very insightful, very smart, very well read. One of the best read people I've ever known. He, um, he I, I could go on and on. His experiences were crazy. You know, like Jerry Garcia at one point had optioned the Sirens of Titan and he wanted to ask Stuart about working with Vonnegut, so he flew him up to San Francisco and they spent a weekend together. He he just dripped stories like that all the time. Wow. And he was just a a fascinating kind of wonderful guy and I'll probably be talking about him for the rest of my life.
1: Well, I, th- I think that was a very nice tribute that, that you just did for him. So, uh, uh, you know, definitely if you've never seen anything from Stuart Gordon, here's your opportunity. And I think that you'll probably, uh, I'm sure there's some stuff out there on streaming and people will be able to catch. And uh, his IMDb yeah. page looks, uh, looks uh, pretty comprehensive, so there's
2: plenty to choose from. All kinds by of jobs. By the genres. way, and earlier when I was talking about Edmund, it was William H. Macy is the lead. It's uh, not, okay. not, not, not an obscure person, but that was, no. the I think, the second to last movie he made. It was written by David Mamet. And it starred William H. Macy and he told me about the production and it was, you know, reasonably low budget and it looks, it looks amazing. It's just really well done. Like he was just artist, you know, from top to bottom. He's, he's one of the best.
1: Well my short end uh, this week is I, I've mentioned it on the show. It's been a short end before, but I have to give it a shout out again because season three has just returned and that's Ozark. Uh, Ozark is I think some of the best television you'll ever see. Uh, it's really, really well written. It's the incredible performances. Season three, uh, again, has a couple of episodes, I believe, directed by uh, Alex Sakharov. I know I, the episode I watched last night, uh, Alex Sakharov, of course, was on our show, um, you know, not that long ago. We did a special at uh, with mm-hmm. him uh, where I moderated a panel at the Camera Image Film Festival. And uh, the show is not, is relentless. It's not uh, letting up. It's uh, it's as absolutely as sharp as... And as well written and as well put together as it ever has. And if you've not seen Ozark, uh, it, it goes to some dark places, of course, because it is a drama slash thriller slash, you know, um, uh, drug cartel TV series. But it's completely worth seeing. And if you've not watched it, it's it's time
2: to start. Yeah, I need to see season three. I really love season two.
1: Yeah, I, I've put everything else on hold to binge my way through season three I'm, I'm averaging about three episodes a night so that means i might be able to finish it tonight
2: <laughs> have you watched tiger king yet
1: i've not watched tiger king but i do know oh. that's going to be a popular halloween costume it is the number oh one God. show on on netflix right now in america so
2: yeah i, I watch tiger king and uh all i can say is uh, you're ready to get a tiger no quite the opposite I think that it was like I was feeling sorry for myself that we're all cooped up in our houses and then after watching Tiger King I'm like you know I don't know that I need to be around other people ever again like like the 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 show opens with it's got kind of a prologue where it's somebody talking about like animal collectors and they're like yeah monkey people they're kind of weird and blah 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 and it's like but man people who people who collect tigers they're all assholes and then it goes into the story and you're just like yeah. Even the people who seem nice on the, the, the most relatable person in the show is someone who did like 12 years in jail for uh drug dealing or drug drug trafficking. Actually. I mean, the thing is like, it starts in a weird place and then just gets weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder. And, weirder. and every time I'm like, okay, I think that we've reached peak weird. It gets weirder. Like, you know so this joke. was not your
1: short end but now we've talked about it at least as long enough for it to be your short end it might as well be <laughs> your sec- second short end this week i have <laughs> two short ends well
2: yeah. <laughs> well Ilya. so uh where can people reach you if they're looking for you on the internet
1: you can still kind of find me over at hot rod cameras. We are still uh, shipping products and taking orders over the website and uh, over the phone. And actually I find myself doing a lot of consulting right now for people over the phone who have questions, technical things uh, you know, going on that we would typically do at the shop. Uh, now I'm doing it from my living room or occasionally yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pop in there for a few minutes, but, but for the most part, no, we just have, I know we, just we always want
2: going people going to visit yeah. your store, but please don't visit. Don't, don't go there at the moment. Don't Unless you go. have like a level four C, CDC biocontainment suit, which is <laughs> not exactly practical because it has like a negative air thing coming out of it you, the whole time. You actually,
1: so. you don't need the suit and uh, you don't need the suit. And we have followed CDC guidelines by like bleaching every surface and every product. I know the last like, time possible. I
2: was, the, the last host wraps that we recorded in the, in the shop, I watched you literally Clorox wipe the whole, like every place that a person's hand would ever end up. And uh, as soon or, as
1: you left, I Clorox wiped all the way av- out behind you and including your microphone.
2: Because <laughs> I am dripping with uh, contagions. Anyway. You know, uh,
1: that, that's the point is who can tell? You, I mean, people who are contagious don't show any symptoms. So yeah.
2: Absolutely. So anyway, uh, so that Where also Where can people please, find you? Please don't go to Ilya's shop and demand a t-shirt. This is an inappropriate time <laughs> to do that. But when this is all over, I want you to go to his shop and I want you to demand rudely, loudly that you want that you deserve a t-shirt um where people can find me is uh in my house cowering in the corner rocking back and forth saying still not clean still not clean um i am at benrockonline.com uh uh, you can find all of my socials there also i'm real easy to find on twitter at neptune salad and i'm checking twitter more than usual these days because what the hell else do i have to do with my life
1: you're really into whatever the president says, huh? That's Just that's hanging why you're on, on his
2: every word. Hanging <laughs> on it. <laughs> well, literally today, after saying that he wanted us to be back to business two weeks from now, basically, today he said, well, it's going to be more like at least 30 days. So, all right, that, that's that's more than double your estimate. And also, no, no expert is saying that we'll be raring and ready to go in 30 days. Uh, well, you
1: know, uh, we'll take it day by day. We'll see how it goes. So, I will say uh, that
2: that this kind of lifestyle, the days do kind of whiz by. So it, it, it goes a little faster, weirdly.
1: Not for me. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to get a lot, trying to get as much done as I can, because I usually actually don't have this much uh, free time. Yeah. But I'm kind of thinking about maybe a uh, survival guide for the cinematography podcast. I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, you know, uh, survival guide to Hollywood. And it could be like for during the pandemic and not during the pandemic. What do you think
2: of that? Uh, let, I think we should get right on that. Yeah, uh, no, All right. let, let, let's do it. Yeah, I've actually been lucky because Bob Derosa, the guy who I co-wrote Video Palace with, he and I are working on a, a script for another audio project that I have uh, elliptically alluded to on here a few times, and so like we're just you know up to our eyeballs in writing, and we would be anyway, and we'd be doing that from home anyway. So the the only difference is uh, as you're looking at my Zoom. Uh, image here you'll see behind me there's another computer and that's alicia's computer from work where she's uh set up and and uh producing the show that she produces
1: all right now you guys get to work together and you can find out if she's the type of person who says let's circle back on that
2: <laughs> i don't think she is i think i would have done <laughs> that anyway anyway man, <laughs> uh, uh so who right. do we need to thank
1: uh let's thank uh, alana cody let's thank ben katz let's thank Kay alitrachi
2: Yes. Go to musicbyks.com and leave him some comment. Ask for music and tell him that you heard his music on here or anything. Or tell him that you hate his music. I don't care. Tell, tell Kay something. Let's see if we can get a reaction out of him.
1: I think he might actually listen to us while he's stuck in the
2: Maybe he'll get caught up on it. Um, ooh, that, ooh, maybe that, we could have him on the show. I would love to have Kay's on the show and I know for a fact that he could record himself better than I can record myself. So, uh, <laughs> I think I, we have no excuse now. I think we should totally get Kay's on the, on the show and we could do a three-way conference like this. You with your mic, me with my mic, him with his mic. And, Whoa. uh, zoom makes it possible. Yeah. Yeah. We can easily have three people on here. be, be a snap.
1: Whoa, what, what's the maximum number we can have?
2: I mean, uh, I don't know what the maximum number is. I know that the script reading we did, we had nine people on here. So, And we (laughs) recorded the whole thing. So uh, anyway, we'll talk about that after we are done uh, with this recording. And thank you again for listening to the Cinematography Podcast. Much more coming at you.
0: This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.